Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together, and then we'll jump right into it. Father, I am grateful to, uh, to be back in my place doing what you've called me to do. I'm thankful for what I've learned. I, I say as the psalmist did, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy law. And Lord, that is continuing to be a process in my life and will be for the duration of my life. And Lord, I pray we'd all recognize that, that you bring things into our lives and you allow things in our lives to teach us. And so, Lord, may we be good students. Father, would you uh, use this lesson tonight to draw us closer to your word? Would you help my teaching to be obviously accurate, but also engaging and useful? Would you just meet with us in a special way tonight, and may Jesus be lifted up in it? And we'll thank you for it, for it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. And amen. All right. We're continuing our thoughts on the subject of observation. And I just want to give you some, some quick uh, review here. You know that our key verse in this whole thing, and we recite this every day in our Bible class, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Psalm 119.18. It is a rare thing for me to approach the word of God and not at least breathe that prayer to myself, obviously to God, but you know, within my own thinking. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, Psalm 119.18. You'll remember that, every, that effective Bible study requires a method, a strategy, a plan of attack that will yield maximum results for your investment of time and effort. Anything worth doing has a proper method, has a proper method. Uh, we gave a formula, the right steps plus the right order equals the right results. We're in the first week of basketball practice, and those of us that are coaching, we're endeavoring to do that, the right steps in the right order that we might produce the right results. And, uh, and that is true in every facet of life, and certainly it's true in how we approach God's Word. The three ingredients to successful Bible study is observation, which is what we're in right now, interpretation, and then application. Observation. Okay, we're talking about terms, structure, literary form, atmosphere, all of this is review. Um, interpretation, what are the keys to proper interpretation? Observation is what do I see? Interpretation is what does it mean? Okay, we're asking questions, we're seeking answers. You say, well, duh, but do we understand there's a whole lot of people out there that ask a lot of questions but never really want to hear the answers? Congress is full of them. Academia is full of them. There's professors on tenure that make a whole lot of money asking questions that they never intend to get the answers to. Brother Davies was telling me that he read an article just today in which scientists have determined that two-thirds, two-thirds of avian dinosaurs, those dinosaurs that had some bird-like qualities, died as the result of some cataclysmic shifting of the Earth's crust combined with a massive influx of water. If they just opened their eyes, they could explain that pretty easily. But they don't want to know the answer. So we're asking questions, but we're also truly looking for answers. Where does that touch the Christian when we're studying the Bible and we're asking questions and then the answer that the Bible gives is not the one we wanted? Are you willing to accept the answer? And then integration, that's taking what you've heard and, and making it into something that's usable, okay? Um, 
Continuing our review, application. These are the implications for me and the implications for others. This is the so what of Bible study, and we're always seeking to keep in mind the big picture. What's the big picture? Can I give it to you in three parts? God made everything. We messed it up. God's fixing it. That's the big picture. (laughs) That's the big picture. And incidentally, in his fixing it, we're actually getting back something far better than we lost. We have more in Jesus than we lost in Adam. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. Um, Careful, effective Bible study. You read, you record, you reflect. You read, record, and reflect. And then the 10 strategies for first-rate reading. This is where we finished up. We talked about reading thoughtfully, repeatedly, patiently, selectively, prayerfully, imaginatively, meditatively, purposefully, acquisitively, and telescopically. Now tonight, lessons 18 through 23, so buckle up. Six things to look for. Six things to look for. We're still talking about observation. We're still talking about observation. Six things to look for. Um, Just as a place to start, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be in several places tonight. This is as good a place to start as any. Be patient with me, if you would. I am breaking in a different preaching Bible. The one that I use most frequently has just, it can't be rebound anymore. It can't be... It's just, it, it needs to be retired. It needs to be put under glass. I hate it because I love that Bible, and I can almost find passages in it without even looking. And now I'm, any of you have ever broken a new, and this isn't a new Bible. I've had it for years, but this is my first real stretch of preaching with it, and I don't know where anything is. You can ask the kids in Bible class. I forget where books of the Bible are, and I'm in the wrong testament. It's been rough. But uh, anyhow. Um, six things to look for. I want to give you some introductory thoughts, first of all. Okay? Um, you understand all Scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the plenary verbal inspiration, all the words and every word of God's Word is inspired, breathed by God Himself using 40 or so human writers over the course of about 1,500 years. We all, we all accede to that. We, we agree with that, even if we don't completely understand it. But while we believe the text of the Bible is inspired, let me make it very, very clear that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They're man-made. They're man-made. We can. Who do we give credit for that? Well, you got a guy named Ben Asher back in 900 A.D., Archbishop Stephen Langdon in the 1200s, Parisian printer Robert Edion. I don't know, I can't speak French, but I think that's pretty close. Um, some people called him Stephanus in 1551. All these and others had a hand in modern chapter and verse divisions that we use today. And we're grateful because these things are helpful. It'd be hard to find a passage if we didn't have a chapter and verse to give us the address of that passage. But understand these divisions, while helpful, are not infallible, and some of them are rather unfortunate. 1 Corinthians, for example. 1 Corinthians was one long, continuous letter from Paul to the people of the church at Corinth. Paul did not divide it into sections. He may have divided into some Greek form of paragraph, but he did not divide it into chapters and verses. So they had a letter. And one of the more unfortunate divisions, um, look at verse number 27 of chapter 12. (sighs) 
Now are you the body of Christ and members in particular, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversity of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now, the chapter division would have you believe that Paul is stopping this thought and moving on to another, but he's not. Because chapter 13 is directly connected to what he just said in verse 31. Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. What is that more excellent way, chapter 13? It's love. It's connected. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. See, that's meant to be connected. So when you're studying the Scriptures, do your best not to be misdirected by chapter and verse divisions because sometimes they can lead you astray. They can take in a wrong direction. Not something that's going to result in heresy, but you're not going to get the most out of your Bible study that you could. The better approach is to learn how to study the Bible in paragraphs, in groupings of sentences. If you can, I have a couple of Bibles. Uh, one of them's here, one of them's at home. It's called a reader's Bible or a paragraph Bible, and there's no chapter-verse divisions in it. It just reads just like any other book would, you know, page, page, page. And I... I found, and my wife will tell you, it's really helped her Bible reading. I mean, just sitting down and reading the Bible as it was originally written in just a straight paragraph form. Um, if you have older copies of the Word of God, sometimes you will see that backwards P symbol in places. That's where the translators imagined would be paragraph divisions. That can be helpful sometimes. All right, so that's just some introductory thoughts. But now we're talking about six things to look for. As you're looking to observe and get all the information from the Bible that you can, six things to look for, and I'm going to give all six of them to you now. First of all, things that are emphasized. We're going to watch for things that are emphasized. We're going to watch for things that are repeated. We're going to watch for things that are related. We're going to watch for things that are alike and things that are unalike. I struggle with that word. It is a word, but I, I just, unalike doesn't sound right to me, but it is a word. I've always said not alike. But he goes with unalike, and he has several doctorates, so we're going to follow him. And then things that are true to life. And if the Lord will help us, we're going to work through all six of those tonight, okay? Um, all right, so let's begin with things that are emphasized. Things that are emphasized. If you have the book, this is Lesson 19, pages 147 through 151. If I'm reading a passage of Scripture and I want to discern what is being emphasized in that passage, what are some things that I look for? First of all, I'm going to look for things that have a, lot, a large amount of space dedicated to them. An amount of space. What do I mean by that? Well, emphasis can be found in the amount of space that's dedicated to a portion of Scripture to a given subject. Let me give you a couple examples. <laughs> give me a couple examples um, Genesis the book of Genesis has 50 chapters chapters 1 through 11 cover the creation the flood and the tower of Babel those are pretty big deals aren't they how we got here is a pretty big deal 
God destroying all of it's a pretty big deal. And then how God separated everybody and spread them across the world, that's a pretty big deal. And it only gets the first 11 chapters. But from chapter 12 through 50, God dedicates a large amount of space in the book of Genesis to four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, there's a whole lot going on around these four people, but fundamentally we're talking about four people. Four people. Chapters 12 through 50. What's the point of that? An emphasis is being placed in Genesis on the founding of the Jews. God wants to make sure that everybody reading the Bible knows how this group of people got started. Why? Because it's from them that we're going to get our Redeemer. And so that's an emphasis there. Here's another one. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew. 28 chapters. Now, you'll remember, we've studied this before, that each gospel has a particular, you know, perspective and a particular audience the gospel of matthew the audience is the jews and the theme is is he is jesus is being presented as the messiah the king of the jews okay now the emphasis of gospel of the gospel of matthew is jesus's sermons now mark emphasizes his miracles luke emphasizes his parables and john emphasizes his doctrine But Matthew emphasizes his sermons. How do we know this? We know this by the amount of space that's dedicated to it. Anybody know right off how many verses the Gospel of Matthew has? I didn't think so. I didn't know either. Matthew has 1,071 verses. 1,071 verses. 342 of them are on Jesus' discourses and sermons. If you do the math, that's 32%. Roughly one-third of the book is nothing but Jesus preaching. Sounds like an emphasis to me. One-third? Amount of space is a way that you determine what is being emphasized. Okay, Here's another way to determine what's being emphasized. This one's very elementary. Stated purpose. Did you know that there are some passages in some books of the Bible that just flat out say why they were written? Let's look at some examples. Proverbs chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. For time's sake, I'm going to go ahead and move move on through these things. But we're going to look at all three of these. Proverbs chapter 1, and I'm going to begin in verse number 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Why was these why was these written? Why were these recorded? He tells you to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation of the words of the wise and their dark sayings. Solomon starts out right out the gate telling you why we're recording these. That's a pretty good indication of what's being emphasized. So what's the emphasis of the book of Proverbs? In a word, wisdom. Wisdom, how to rightly use God's word. Here's another one. I like this. I like them all. At the end of John's gospel, John seems to me to be a very practical man. 
And at the end of the gospel, God allows him through inspiration to write why he wrote the gospel. Now, why would he write that from a human perspective? Because John was the last of the four gospels written, and perhaps there's an argument to be made. Well, I mean, we've got three other ones. Why do we need a fourth? Do we not believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke? So John gives the stated purpose that he wrote this gospel. Verse 20, verse chapter, 30, chapter 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Hey, why'd you write your gospel, John? Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. He then goes back to that same theme in his first epistle, John 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Stated purpose. So how do we know what's being emphasized in a portion of Scripture? It could be the amount of space that's dedicated to a subject. It could be the stated purpose. Or it could be a matter of movement. Now, what do we mean by movement? You will find, if you're paying attention, and you know what to look for, that Scripture will often move from lesser to greater or from greater to lesser. Now, what does that mean? And the best example I can give you is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. When you look at David's life, David starts out great. And his life, with some exceptions, he's got some lapses here and there, but for the most part, his life is on an upward trajectory until you get to 2 Samuel 11. He's moving up. He's going up. And then the sin with Bathsheba and everything he did to cover it. And if you look at David's life from there on, yeah, there were some victories, but for the most part, what's it doing? It's going down. So what do we take from that? What do we take from that movement of David's life? And and over time, you'll learn how when you read the Bible to see that ebb and that flow and that up and that down in things. I tell you, a good example is Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who's way down here, but through the book, he starts to get back to where he was again. What do we learn from this movement in David's life? Well, I think the emphasis there is the consequences of sin. David, a man after God's own heart, still had a pretty heavy price to pay. He was forgiven but there was still chastening and still consequences. So we see things that are emphasized. The second thing we're going to look look for when we're reading our Bible is things that are repeated. Things that are repeated. First of all, you're going to look for things like uh, terms and phrases and clauses. It's interesting. I covered this with the young people today in Bible class. We have been over terms about three or four times now. Terms keep coming back. Why? Because the single most important thing that you've got to get right when you're studying your, your Bible is that you define your terms correctly. If you don't do anything else, if you don't get anything else from this study, make sure you define your terms because a misdefined term can lead to wrong doctrine so easily. And so we will keep coming back to terms over and over and over. This, is, I think, is the second of like four that we get to. 
terms, phrases, clauses, things that are repeated. Let me give you a couple examples. The word verily, V-E-R-I-L-Y, verily, is an old English word for truly. And when you look at the four Gospels, you see the word verily pops up 78 times. 78 times. Now, what's super interesting to me about this is 25 of those times, Jesus doesn't say verily. He says, verily, verily. Now, did the writer, the scribe, have a hand cramp and write the same thing twice? No. That's what's called an intensive. That, that re- repetition is meant to intensify what he's saying. If, if I'm in basketball practice and I say, listen, now, that's important that you listen, but if I go, listen, listen, that, that's doubly important. So when Jesus says, verily, verily, now here's what's really interesting about that. Of the 25 times that he says, verily, verily, it only happens in the book of John. It's not recorded in any other gospel. Just the book of John, verily, verily. Now, what should we glean from that? Now, we're admittedly, we're going to use our imagination a little bit here. What should we glean with, from that? Whoops. I'm going to go out on a theological limb here, but I think I'm okay. Why would John use the term verily, verily exclusively and not Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Because I don't think any of the four Gospels spends as much time emphasizing the truth and authenticity of Jesus as being the true Son of God, as does John. And we see that come to a head in John chapter 14, don't we? I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, So that's a repetition that we would do well to take notice of. Here's another one that's a little easier to spot. How about, uh, how about Psalm uh, 136? 26 times you see the same phrase, for his mercy endureth forever. What's the emphasis of that psalm? For his mercy endureth forever. That's the emphasis. Pretty easy one, isn't it? So we're looking out for things that, uh, things that are emphasized. We're looking at things that are repeated. Things like terms, phrases, clauses. How about characters? Have you ever noticed in your Bible reading that some characters just keep popping up even though they're not the main character in that narrative? And a good example of that would be Barnabas. Barnabas is not a main character at all in Acts, and yet he just keeps popping up. We first see him in Acts chapter 4, when he, uh, he's called the son of consolation or the son of encouragement, and he, he, uh, he, he sells his property and gives it to this fledgling church to help this, this man of great encouragement. And then we see him in Acts chapter 9, standing up for this new convert named Saul that nobody trusts. And then we see him in Acts chapter 11, teaching the new Gentile converts that half the Jews don't want anything to do with. And then we see him pop up in Acts 15, even sticking up against Paul for John Mark. What do we see? We see him over and over and over and over. When somebody needs to be in a place of encouragement, Barnabas is there. That's an emphasis that's worth noting. Here's another one. We're going to look for repeated terms, phrases, and clauses. We're going to look for repeated characters. We're also going to look for repeated incidents and circumstances. And I don't know of a better illustration of this than the book of Judges. Judges follows a predictable recurring cycle, doesn't it? Over 
and over and over. What is it? Israel serving the Lord. Then they lapse into idolatry. God sends an oppressor to chasten them. Israel cries out for a deliverer. God sends a judge to deliver Israel. Israel again serves the Lord, and then they lapse into idolatry, and God sends an oppressor, and then they cry out for a deliverer, and God sends a judge, and then they're serving the Lord again, and then they fall into idolatry. It just goes and goes and goes. That's something to watch out for, repeated incidents or repeated circumstances. Then you're going to watch out for the repeated use of New Testament use of Old Testament passages. There are certain places in the New Testament that, that quote Old Testament passages over and over and over. This is most clearly seen in places like Matthew and Hebrews. Now, we could, spend, we could spend a night on each of these. I'm just trying to get us back to par, I think. We're looking for things that are emphasized. We're looking for things that are repeated. And then we're looking for things that are related. Things that are related. When you, can, when you can connect things, let's look at some, some, some examples. How about this? How about movement from the general to the specific? Movement from the general to the specific. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give an example. Matthew chapter 6. If you read Matthew chapter 6, The basic gist of what Jesus is saying there is be careful not to perform acts of righteousness before men to be seen because if you do, you're you're not going to get any reward from your Father which is in heaven. If you're doing this for praise or men to see you, there's your reward right there. You're not getting any more. That's a very general statement. True, but general. But then what does he do after that? He starts honing it in to things that are more specific. Like, for instance, he starts out in verses 2 through 4. He says, okay, in the matter of giving. If you're giving your alms to be seen of men, you have your reward. But my Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Then, verses uh, 5 through 15, he moves from the subject of giving to the specific subject of praying. Talks about getting in your prayer closet, not standing out on the street corners like the Pharisees did. Then he gets into fasting in verses 16 through 18. See, he gets real specific. All these things are related. Maybe the easiest, the easiest uh, example of this would be, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's pretty general, isn't it? True, but general. But then what does God do in the rest of that chapter? He gets specific. On the first day, he did this. On the second day, he did this. On the third day, he did this. On the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, he rested. He goes from very general to very specific. That's something to take note of. I'll tell you what else he does to show relationships within Scripture. He uses questions and answers. Now, you see this a lot in Jesus' interactions with people, but let's look at some other things. How about let's look at rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions. There's a term for this that I'm probably going to use in one of my messages on Sunday. It's epotesis, E-P-O-T-E-S-I-S. Aren't y'all better for knowing that word? What an apotheosis is, is it is asking a question 
without expecting or waiting for an answer. And if you're a parent, you've used this a lot. What were you thinking? You're not expecting an answer, and you're not going to wait for one. You know, That's kind of what's going on here. Paul does this a lot. Can I give you a couple examples? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He, he's not giving them a chance to answer. He's putting forth a rhetorical question, and then he's going to hit you with the truth right after that. He does it again in the same chapter. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. See, questions and answers, and Paul gives his own. Then there's not just rhetorical questions. There's questions that need no answer. If you've ever read through the book of Job, at the end of it, in Job chapter 38, God finally speaks up. Listen, listen to what God says in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Ooh. It's interesting. As God, for the rest of this chapter, just poses question after question after question, one thing that's noticeably absent are any answers. Job knows to keep his mouth shut. There was a sitcom back in the 80s. I'll not call it out for a lot of reasons. It wasn't wicked or anything, but it's not helpful. But in the sitcom, the girl disobeyed her mother and father, and she was found out, and she came home. And she sat the girl down on the couch, and she said, What were you thinking? And the girl started to answer, Don't you talk back to me when I'm yelling at you. And then she posed another question. Did you think you were going to? And she just sat there quietly. Answer me. And then when she did, don't you talk back to me. You know, the kid couldn't do right at that point. This was, it's interesting. In the book of Job, don't forget, yes, Job did very well, but Job was not without sin in that. Job had some pride issues that needed to be worked through. And so God had to chasten Job a little bit at the end. Not as bad as his friends, but still. Questions that need no answer. And sometimes the questions that we see are pointed, searching, and even convicting questions. Imagine you were one of the disciples on the boat. Jesus said, let's go to the other side, and he goes to the back and goes to sleep. Master, carest thou not that we perish? What does Jesus say to him? Mark 4.40. He said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? That's a pretty pointed question, isn't it? Here's another one, Matthew 26, 40. In the garden of Gethsemane, he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? These are things that, that, that are matters of emphasis, and they're worth taking note of when you're reading and studying the Scripture. It may not be a matter of questions. It may be a cause and effect. Now, what is cause and effect? Go to Acts chapter 8, would you? Acts chapter 8. Verse number 1, And Saul, that's Paul pre-salvation, 
was consenting unto his death. Who's his? Who's his? Talking about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Stephen. And Saul was consenting unto his, let me, let me rephrase that, the first martyr of the church. The first martyr post-resurrection was James. But, uh, but we're talking about the first martyr of the church. I think so. Let me, let me check here. I want to tell you right. I think James is already dead. Nope. It is. It is, Stephen. Pardon. Yeah, that's chapter 12. All right. The first Christian martyr. I was right when I started. Well, how can I doubt myself like that? I ought to, yeah. So Saul was consenting unto his death, and at the time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they were scattered abroad. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. What's the cause? The cause is Stephen's martyrdom. What's the effect? What effect does Stephen's martyrdom have? It has two effects. Number one, it spurs on this general persecution at large. But more than that, it spreads the gospel. Because as people run, they take the gospel with them. So you see a cause and you see an effect. Can I give a couple other examples real quick? Everything's going on in Israel right now. You know whose fault it is? Ultimately, Abraham. All these folks descended from who? Ishmael. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham and Sarah decided not to wait on God and his timing, decided to take things in their own hands. And so Abraham and Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, have a baby, and his name is Ishmael. And that began this whole mess. Cause effect. How about this? Remember in 1 Samuel 15? What did God through Samuel tell Saul, King Saul, to do? Kill all the Amalekites. Kill them all. Did Saul obey that? No. What do you see in Esther chapter 3 and following? You see a man trying to exterminate the Jews. His name was Haman and he was an Agagite. A specific group of Amalekite. If Saul would have been obedient, there wouldn't have been a Haman. Cause, effect. Now let's make it more personal. Every time I fail the Lord, I have the potential to have a ripple effect that hurts my kids and my grandkids and their kids. I better be careful. Cause, effect. These are things worth noting when we're studying the Bible. So, things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, things that are related. How about this? How about things that are alike or unalike? We'll combine those two. Things that are alike or unalike. Have you noticed? We've only got two lessons left. We're moving through this very well. Now we get to get into some of those grammatical terms that our teenagers love. They get excited about this stuff. Not so much. Um, things that are alike. Similes. Similes are comparisons that use like or as. You see this a lot in the Song of Solomon. 
You see it a good bit in Revelation. Um, it's important to understand that when something says like or as, that means it's not actually that. Okay? Like or as. Um, this is also very common in the Psalms. Psalm 42.1, the psalmist says, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Is the psalmist saying that he's a deer? No. Is he saying that he needs to take a drink of water? No, he's saying, I thirst for God like that deer thirsts for water. That's a simile. Peter gives a good example, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Is he saying that these Christians are literally newborn babes? No. He's saying that like a newborn babe, they're desiring the milk of the word. So you've got similes, then you've also got what I'm going to call comparative metaphors, because you've got two types. Comparative metaphors, this is a figurative comparison. Some good examples of these are what Jesus says of himself in the Gospel of John. How about John 10, verse 9? I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. There's no like or as there. This is a metaphor. He's saying, I am like a door. Is Jesus literally a door? No, he's saying, I function like a door. That's a metaphor. By the way, this is something I try to, those of you that teach English, I'm trying to help you here. I am hammering into these kids in my Bible class. This is why you pay attention in English class. First of all, it's your native language. You ought to want to know it. But second of all, you need this to properly read your, your Bible. I can't tell you how many times I've wrestled with a, with a Bible verse that you know what I ultimately had to do with it? Diagram it. Cleared it right up. And all them teens, are, when I say that in class, they're like, oh, you didn't tell them to do that, did you? Yeah, yeah, actually, I said that's a good idea. You know, comparative metaphors. Um, Jesus is not literally a door, but he functions as a door. How about this? John 15, 1, I'm the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Is Jesus literally a vine? Nope. But he functions as a vine. Comparative metaphors, things that are alike. But then you've got things that are unalike. Instead of seeing a comparison, sometimes the Bible will use contrasts. What do we mean by that? How about the use of the word but? It signals a transition and often a contrast. Would you go with me to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19, talk about things that are unlike. Galatians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad it doesn't stop there? But, er, hits the brakes, pivots. But, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. 
So that use of that word but, there's, there's lots of places in my Bibles that I write in that I've circled that, that word but because it, it's, you know, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't get more opposite than that. Then, just like we had metaphors of comparison, we have contrasting metaphors. A good example of that is Luke 18. Let's go to Luke 18. We're doing awesome on time. That was not one of the benefits of my sabbatical that I thought I would have is to be a better time manager. We'll see if that lasts. Don't hold your breath. Contrasting metaphors. This is not a comparison. This is a contrast. Luke 18, verse 1. He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought to always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. There was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? I have heard preachers take this passage and say, This teaches us that if we'll just keep praying and keep praying and keep praying, we'll finally get through to God. That is not what this passage is saying. This is not a comparison. He is not saying that this unjust judge is like God. He's saying the Father is exactly opposite of this guy. Our God delights in hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. Now, he may not do it at a time that you think he should, but he is listening and he is prepared to answer it. You may not like the answer, but he's prepared to hear and answer prayer. He's not like this guy. He's the exact opposite. This is a contrasting metaphor. Here's another one. Irony. You familiar with irony? One of the great ironic passages in the Bible is in Luke chapter 8. Jairus has sent word to Jesus, my daughter's dying. Will you come? Jesus says, I'll come. And as he's working through this crowd, the crowd is just thronging him. They are all over him. They are pressing against him. The disciples are doing their best to keep them off of him just enough to where he can move through the crowd and get to this poor man's daughter, but I mean, they are all around him, just thronging him and pressing him, and it's, it's just this mosh pit of need. And this one woman with an issue of blood has had it for 12 years, works her way through that crowd. For all we know, she's crawling on her hands and knees, and she gets to Jesus, and she reaches out, and she touches the hem of his garment, those, those tassels that Jewish men had hanging from their robe. She just gets a hold of the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops, and what does he say? Who touched me? That's irony. And the disciples pointed out. What do you mean, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. And Jesus explains, no, I felt the virtue go out of me. Who touched me? That's irony. 
And it's something that shows emphasis. And it shows um, uh, things that are, that are unalike. Then the last thing, things that are true to life. We could spend a whole message just on this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it happens to be talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and the chastening and the things that they endured. But Paul says, now all these things happen unto them for examples, that they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. What's he saying? These things that you read about, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, you are meant to learn from. You are meant to get lessons from this. You are meant to identify with these people. It, it said, uh, James says of, of, of the prophet Elijah, he was a man subject to like passions as we are, made of the same stuff we are, and dealt with the same issues and insecurities that we do. Can I, can I tell you, over the last month, I've gotten really, really reacquainted with Elijah. There's some guys that I've tried to study more on in this time. I've looked at people like Elijah. I've looked at people like Moses. I've looked at people like John the Baptist. I've looked at, at people like David, people that had extreme highs, but also extreme lows. I've looked at guys like Spurgeon and Adoniram Judson, you know? And what you see here is you, you see that these things are recorded that we might benefit from them, that we might be admonished and taught by them. And these examples that we're going to see, they emphasize authenticity and things that resonate with our experience. Let's look at some of these guys. Noah, have you ever had God ask something of you that made absolutely no sense whatsoever? I have. No, I want you to build a boat. Why, Lord? It's going to rain. It's never rained before. We're nowhere near a body of water. It's going to look kind of weird having this boat in the middle of nowhere. Just do it, Noah. I don't know that Noah had that conversation. I think Noah just obeyed. But have you ever had God ask something of you? How about this? Here's one. Have you ever had a high spiritual experience only to then mess up immediately afterwards? Noah, one of eight people to survive the global flood, steps off of the ark. There's the rainbow, the sign of God's promise. They have a worship service right there on Mount Ararat. And before long, what does Noah do? Gets drunk. Now, I personally am of the opinion that Noah got drunk because he didn't understand fermentation. I have a hard time believing that Noah would, be, would swing that hard, that fast, knowing what we know of him. It could be that fermentation didn't exist pre the flood. didn't work the same way. I don't know. All I know is Noah got in a mess. Whether it was his fault or not, Noah was in a rough spot right after a major victory. I've been there. I've done some pretty dumb things after some pretty big things. I can relate to Noah in that regard. How about Abraham? You ever had God ask you for the one thing you wanted to give away the least? Abraham knows how that feels. You ever had God make you a promise and then take too long to give it to you? In your mind? Oh, yeah. Abraham knows how you feel. How about Moses? Moses had two and a half million people that he pastored. And there were times that all two and a half million of them were against him. 
including his own brother, his own sister, at one point his own wife. I got to tell you, Zippor was a rough lady if you read up on her. She'd get hot. How about, here's one for you. Have you ever had a time in your life where what Jesus did for you you on the cross wasn't enough? Because if we really pondered what Jesus did for us on the cross, how could we ever fail him again? But sometimes we treat it as though it wasn't enough. Moses had a time like that. You remember, God told him to hit the rock. Who's the rock? That's Jesus. Smite the rock. The second time he said, don't smite the rock, speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He smote smote him again. He destroyed the type of Jesus' death. Moses had issues. How about David? Good night. We'd be the rest of the night on David. Did David have issues? He sure did. And I can resonate with those. Maybe the one in this list that I resonate the most with is Peter. Man, Peter had some moments of brilliance, and then he had some moments of complete stupidity. I don't know much about the brilliance, but I've covered the stupidity part. How about John Mark? He quit on God. But then did God eventually use him again? He sure did. He wrote a gospel. You see, no matter what name you put up there, you can identify with something. Things that are true to life, things that resonate with us, things that speak to where we are. We're talking about six things that we want to look for when we're, when we're observing, when we're reading the Bible in sections. We want to look for things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, things that are related, things that are alike or unalike, things that are true to life. 